We are in a Romans 16, a strange place to kind of land for a one-shot sermon. Uh, this is not the text that when you're in seminary and you have you, you preach a passage, everybody there are certain places students tend to go. It's not usually a list of names and greetings, um, but I'll explain as we work through why I think this is helpful for us and on the heels of this uh, weekend's conference, a side-by-side um, church, and that's what we want to see in, in these verses. But if you could boil down um, the church to its most basic elements, I think what you would end up finding is there would be this one amazing person, Jesus. You'd have this one life-transforming message, the gospel, and then you would have a whole bunch of ordinary, insignificant people. I mean, that's that's the church, and it's kind of raw elements that in God's wisdom, he combines these two powerful, potent realities, uh, his son and, and his gospel. And he combines those and mixes those with with very weak and needy people. And he and he does something and he builds something that's absolutely unshakable. It's it's the power of God. That's that's the church. And it's it's beautiful. It's breathtaking. And so the aim of this weekend's conference and the aim of our time even this morning is to is to give us a vision of what God can do through just ordinary people and ordinary conversations in the context of everyday life that God does some of the most remarkable things in that in that type of in in that way. And so for for some of you I I thank God this is this is almost intuitive for you. I mean, you already you do this, and I mean, I know there's room to excel even more, but I'm, I'm just grateful for that, and, I, and I'm not going to say names, but I, I mean, I have faces and people in mind as I say that. You're, you're always working to know people better. You're always taking relationships deeper. You're always asking, how can you pray, and you're praying with people, and that's great. For the rest of us, we have a long way to go. And and so that's that was the hope for this weekend. And so this morning, what I want to do is to in Romans 16 here, just to give us kind of a snapshot of what a side by side church would look like if we really together embrace this even more as a body. What I, I think there's some things we can see even in Paul's greetings here to the church in Rome that would help us see this. And so the picture that emerges for us of a side by side church, it comes as we read a piece of the. Roman church's mail. This is a letter Paul wrote to them. These are his concluding thoughts. The book of Romans is a letter, a long uh, letter, but it, but he's concluding it with these personal re- remarks, and that's where we'll see it. So in Romans 16, through these greetings, Paul is teaching us without actually teaching. Um, we, we, we do this often. I, I embarrassed my wife, and I didn't get her permission, but I'm going to say it anyway. I'm... Uh, but Brooke taught our family something uh, this week, and she probably doesn't even realize it. We were at the dinner table. We had finished uh, dinner the other night, and um, she, our neighbor had emergency gallbladder surgery the day before. And so she's, she, we had finished eating. We were just sitting and talking. She said, you should call Mike and see how, how Debbie's doing. And uh, it's a great idea. So I call, and I'm talking with, of course, I make some smart aleck comment, and and uh, anyway, that, but uh, not to my wife. Uh, I was joking with my neighbor, and, and anyway, it was. Uh, so in the course of that conversation, Brooke says, tell him that we'll bring a meal tomorrow night. Uh, uh, we'll bring him dinner. 
And uh, so I told him and, and hung up the phone and, 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 and all well. But, but without, so, so by, by just doing something, by just saying that, she's, she didn't sit down the family and say, I want to teach you kids how to be a good neighbor. She just did something. She just responded and, and there was a lesson there. There was a lesson for me. There was a lesson for my kids and how to be a good neighbor. That, this goes the other way too. There's, there's lessons we teach without teaching that, that aren't good things. And, and so if I lay on the horn and ride the bumper of the guy who just cut me off in traffic with my kids in the car, I'm teaching them something. And, and so we te- we can teach without teaching. That's my, point but Paul Paul is teaching without teaching at the end of Romans here he's doing more than he is teaching but class is in session and uh, there's a clear lesson for us he's just greeting his friends in Rome he's sending greetings from some of those who are with him in Corinth where he's writing this letter and and yet the Holy Spirit inspires Paul he breathes these words are breathed out by God but the Spirit inspires Paul to write these personal greetings to show us something to teach us something. And so I'm not going to comment on every name in this list. And, and, and all I want to do is point out what, what I would see is six prominent features of a side-by-side church that emerge from, from this text. So the first feature is this. Is that a side-by-side church is a mixed bag of ordinary people who are in the Lord. It's a, this diverse group. This mixed bag of very normal and average people. Who are in the Lord. So Paul commends to the Romans. Just We'll see several examples here. He commends to the Romans. Verse 1. Our sister Phoebe. A servant of the church in Sincrea. So most scholars think that she's the one. That Paul entrusts to carry this letter of Romans. To um, letter to the Roman church. And so she's she's probably a single wealthy businesswoman. And, and, and she's a patron. Verse 2 says. Or a helper of many including Paul. But her name, Phoebe, it comes from Greek mythology. She probably comes from a pagan Gentile background, saved from that. And actually, most of the names in this list in Romans 16 are Gentile names. This is showing that this is probably a majority Gentile church in Rome, which isn't surprising to us. And the majority of the names listed here are either slaves or freedmen, freed slaves. And so... Some in the list, though, you, you have some who are part, uh, seem to be part of Caesar's household. Look in verse 10. You have Aristobulus. He was a grandson of Herod the Great. He was a close friend of the emperor Claudius. And so he, he was not a believer, Aristobulus. But, but when he died, all of his slaves, they would become the property of the emperor. And so, so, but they would still be called the family or the household of Aristobulus. And so they, they were, they were believers. And so he mentions them. Herodian, verse 11, also probably a Jewish slave or a freedman who, who was part of that larger household of Aristobulus and in the, in the emperor's, that was now in the emperor's service. So, verse 11, the family of Narcissus, also, again, probably referred to slaves of, that had become part of the, 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 of uh, the emperor's uh, service, that there's a story of Nero. When Nero came to the throne, um, his mother Agrippina forced Narcissus to commit suicide. And and three to four years, this was three to four years before Romans was written. And so, what would likely happen was, was that his slaves then became part of that 
um, royal household. And so you have those. You have that element. You have Tertius in verse 22. He's Paul's secretary. He's the guy that's actually has the, the, the quill in hand and writing the letter of Romans as Paul dictates this letter. And so uh, you, you have Tertius and, and Quartus. They're both slaves. Their names mean third and fourth. They don't, not even really a name. It's a number. Not even the number one or two slaves, third and fourth, and so even so, they're they're members of this church in Rome, and 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 again, Tertius has this very important tasks of writing, of, of writing this this letter, the dictated letter of Romans, and Cortus is he's not just some nameless slave to Paul. He says he's our he's our brother, this noble designation, close relationship, and, and in the same breath, he mentions. Erastus, the city treasurer. So this important public position. And so, so in the church at Corinth, you have these, these kind of, in, in terms of how they thought in the society, these low-level slaves and these, these, these important officials right alongside one another. They're together in the church. The church is not, is not to be socioeconomically or educationally or vocationally homogenous. We, we, we shouldn't all wear the same kinds of clothes and shop in the same kinds of stores and listen to the, have the same playlist on our iTunes account. We, we, there, there's, to, there's to be this diversity in the, in the church. And it should reflect that of the community, just like the city is diverse. The, the church is, it reflects that. These high officials. Slaves, servants, nameless servants. I'm just thinking, I've said things like this before, but I mean, I, I hope that that continues to grow in this body. Uh, just even in, the, in those realms, socioeconomically, educationally, vocationally, that we would have some gas-guzzling giant pickup truck parked next to a Prius, which is parked next to a rust bucket. And, and, and that's great, and nobody... Nobody cares. Nobody knows. Instead, we got like 50 silver Honda minivans in our parking lot. And, and I always go to the wrong one. So, uh, um, but, but uh, again, nothing against silver Honda minivans. But, um, but, but there's this rich diversity in the church there in Rome. These ordinary people. And it goes beyond those, those areas. It's Jew and Gentile also. We've mentioned the Gentile Majority, but you have many Jews, Prisca and Aquila, verse 3, their fellow tent makers with Paul, their fellow Jews with Paul. Then like others in the chapter, he calls others my kinsmen. And he's referring to those Jews in the church at, at Rome, verse 7, verse 11, verse 21. And so if, if you, you, we've studied the Romans before and you have no doubt personally, there are these tensions that existed between the, the, the Jewish and the Gentile segments in the church. And Paul has labored hard to to urge them to, to work together in the Lord, to, 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 to grow in love as one body in Christ. And so they're, they're to, that's not to define them, their Jewishness or their, their Gentile background. And so there are other Jews. There's another man uh, who's probably a Jew, Rufus, verse 13. Um, there's a Rufus mentioned in Mark uh, chapter 15, verse 21. Mark says that, that Rufus's father was Simon of Cyrene, the man that carried Jesus' cross to Golgotha. And so, since Mark's gospel was probably written before, uh, um, was probably written for the Romans, the, the Rufus here may be the same, 
uh, Rufus that is mentioned there in Mark. And because clearly Mark understood that his readers would know who this Rufus was. He was clearly a part of the church there. And so if Rufus, if so, Rufus's father was this Jew from Cyrene, which is modern Libya, North Africa, who, who had gone to Jerusalem for the Passover. And, and it was there that through this forced encounter with Christ and carrying his cross that he ended up coming to faith in, in Christ and believing in him as a savior and Lord. And so Luke, and, and again, this is speculation, but perhaps what happened in, in the book of Luke, or in the, excuse me, in the book of Acts, Luke mentions the fact that when the gospel first went to Antioch, it was, it was men from Cyprus and Cyrene who first preached it there. In Acts chapter eleven twenty, so it's possible we can't be certain that Simon of Cyrene was one of those first preachers that took the gospel to Antioch. Well, his son Rufus now is this prominent figure in the church at Rome, and we don't know why Paul singles him out. Verse thirteen, notice the designation; he singles him out as though as one chosen in the Lord. He, I mean, that's chosen, elected in the Lord. That's true of every one of us. If you're in the Lord, you're chosen in the Lord. But he, he has this thing, designation. And, and if you know anything about Romans, mo- one of the things you often know is it's, there's, a, there's a dominant theme of sovereign grace, sovereign election that comes out in Romans 9 to 11 and, and many other places as well. But it may be Paul and Rufus had long discussions into the night about this. And so he uses this designation. Maybe he is the son of Simon of Cyrene. And he, he uses this as just... <coughs> Emphasizing God's sovereignty to bring his father in contact with Christ. And, and, and so this truth of election is exceedingly precious to him. I, I don't know, but he, but it's just, I'm just pointing it out. This is, note these little things as we read through this. And so, so the church, I would say this about the church. It's also, it's not to be ethnically or culturally homogenous either. It's to reflect the diverse makeup of its community. And, and that's a great, that's a great exhortation to us that our church ought to reflect and ought to look like the community that we live. If we're really making disciples where we live, we live in a diverse community and our church ought to increasingly reflect that. I know that's a shared desire and something we're praying for and laboring, laboring for. So the church in Rome is made up of these ordinary, but very diverse people. Some were slaves, some were Kind of blue collar workers. Some were wealthy and influential. Some were men. But Paul mentions a number of women. We'll come back to that. What was it that, what was it that drew them together? What was it that united them in this, in this thing that's called the church and brought them side by side? What was it? Well, the answer is repeated over and over in these verses. And if you want to take the time now or later today and just highlight this Phrase, but 11 times Paul repeats, in the Lord or in Christ. Just over and over. He asks the Romans to receive Phoebe in the Lord. He commends Prisca and Aquila as fellow workers in Christ Jesus. He says that Andronicus and Junius were in Christ before me. Verse 7. He calls Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Urbanus is our fellow worker in Christ. Apelles is approved in Christ. He sends his greetings to the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. Tryphena and Tryphosa are workers in the Lord. Persis, beloved, the beloved, has worked hard in the Lord. 
Rufus is chosen in the Lord. Tertius sends his greetings in the Lord, in the Lord, in the Lord, in Christ. So throughout Romans, that, that designation in Christ is the, the most precious of things. There could be nothing greater to be said of us and to be true of us than the fact that we are in Christ. Romans 6 verse 11, we are dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Romans 8 verse 1, the great chapter, great 8 in Romans, Romans 8 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for who? For those who are in Christ Jesus. So, so the most important thing about you, the most important thing about me is that we are in Christ. It's not slave or free or rich or poor or, or intelligent or illiterate or, or influential or just some nobody. That doesn't matter in the church. What matters is that we're in Christ. Church is this, is this countercultural, counterintuitive, just radically different thing than the world can even know about. It, because we, what brings us together is a supernatural identification that we have with Christ. And that's what, that's what brings us together. That's what bonds us. It's not just the natural affinities we have. It's not that we like the same kind of food and we wear the same kind of clothes and have the same kind of hairdo and that's not it. Thankfully that's not it. Um, um, it's that we are in Christ. And so this is the first thing that we see of a side by side church that, 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 that it's, it's a diverse, beautifully diverse, mixed bag of insignificant, ordinary, weak, needy people from every walk of life who are in Christ. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Second second feature that comes out of this picture of a side-by-side church is that a side-by-side church is always being changed by never-changing truth. Now, you know, again, Romans 16 chapter. That's a long letter. Um, and, and so Romans, again, it, it is, it is kind of the, 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 the deepest part of the theological ocean of the New Testament. I mean, it, this is some deep stuff. This is a doctrinally deep letter. But who's it written to? Very normal, ordinary Christians. Again, many of them slaves. Many of them uneducated. But, but it's written to, so that they would know Christ and to be growing in their walk with Him. I just want to read a quote from one of the commentators, Leon Morris. He says to this point, he says, Romans, it was a letter to real people. And as far as we can see, ordinary people. It was not written to professional theologians, although through the centuries scholars have found this letter a happy hunting ground. As we consider the weighty matters Paul deals with, we are apt to overlook the fact that it was addressed to people like Ampliatus and Tryphena and Rufus. Clearly, Paul expected this kind of person to be helped by what he wrote, a fact which modern experts sometimes overlook. And, and this is just the point. It's, not, the observation I'm making is that, that just this normal, these normal people that Paul is greeting and that are that are who are in the Lord and who have brought together in this church, that, that this doctrine, it applies, it changes them. This, this rich, 
What we believe impacts what we do. How we live. It always does. Our theology is the, is the bedrock on which we build our lives. And so, so there, this is a side by side church is going to always be being changed by, by truth. It does not change. Always being transformed by it. Always growing in it. We live, we live in an, in, in an increasingly anti-doctrine environment. Church culture in the wider Christian context. Pragmatism is what rules the day. In Christianity today. And so theology is kind of shoved aside as being impractical, as being divisive. And, 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 but Paul, Paul would not agree with that. He would not. That, that the believers in Rome were radically shaped by God's truth. And, and all churches should be, including ours. That he spends 11 chapters laying the solid foundation, theological foundation, before he ever gets to the so-called practical matters and Chapter 12 to 16. And so, and again, very ordinary Christians that he's writing to. So, there should be a connection. This is my point. There should be a connection to the depth, a connection between the depth of our understanding of, of scripture, of doctrine, and the depth of our relationships with one another. They correlate. They, they correspond with one another. And so if, if, if your relationships aren't growing deeper, just like we've been talking about all weekend in this conference, and if you weren't here, I want you to listen and, and see what this, what this looks like. And if they're not growing deeper, then either one, there's something wrong with your doctrine, or two, there's something wrong with you, and that you're being a hearer of the word, a, a, a forgetful hearer rather than an effectual doer. So, so the church that's truly a side-by-side church, that, that this is what God wants for his people, is yes, Truth matters. We don't set that aside and pursue relationships apart from that. No, it's, it's because we care about God's truth and because we want to be changed by it that we move toward one another in love. It, it's what informs and directs everything that we do, including how we relate to one another. So it's not either or. It's, it's clearly both. Third, third uh, characteristic of a side-by-side church that emerges here is that a side-by-side church is a greenhouse for the growth of deep, diverse, and dear friendships and relationships. It's going to foster that, and this is what I was alluding to just a second ago. There are, there are over 30 names in these two sections, and it, in, in verses 1 to 16, and then down in verse 21 to 23, there are over 30 names here, and it's likely that Paul knew most of them personally. Just by the way that this is written, that he mentions four of them as being especially close. He calls my beloved or the beloved, verse 5, verse 8, verse 9, verse 12, including Apenetus, and, 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 and he was the first convert in Asia, and so he's one of the guys that he mentions this. He calls Phoebe our sister, verse 1. He calls Cortus our brother, verse 23. He mentions Rufus's mother as being as being a mother to me as well, verse 13. So apparently she ministered to Paul just like a mom would. And when he was sick, he, she made her chicken soup or whatever the equivalent was in that day. I mean, she she cared for him like a mom. Prisca and Aquila, they, he says, verse three, they risked their their necks for Paul. And so. We don't know when this happened. We don't know exactly how it happened, what they did. But obviously there, there's this close bond that formed between Paul and, 
this husband and wife because of this. He also directs the believers in Rome to greet one another with a holy kiss. Verse 16. That was a common custom in that culture. Um, and it would have been men with men and women with men, women. So this was a holy kiss. Um, but I, but, but this is part of that, that greeting, that closeness that the church shared. So all of these personal warm greetings, they reflect the love that Paul has for these believers and, and between all believers. This is evident here. And so it, it's, a, to me, it's just amazing that he could remember all of these names. Um, that, that clearly he took this personal interest in people as he visited, as he heard of these people. Some of these people he may not have even met. And, and so should we. I mean, I just say there's a very, very practical lesson there. That one of the things that if you work hard at learning names and learning kids' names. I know we have some large families and it takes work and it takes effort and one of the greatest ways to do that is just to pray for these families. We have the calendar and we're praying through the flock and, and just really work at those names, praying for these children and praying for uh, the body. But that is, that's, a, that's one of the, one of the, we're talking about in this weekend, just moving closer, moving towards one another. Part of that in a very simple way is just knowing a name and, and knowing, knowing kids' names, knowing people. And I, I wonder if Paul... If it's his regular prayer for churches like the church in Rome that helped him to remember names, he's just praying for people. Um, so this this is so so. But the point in this that I think that in the picture that emerges here is that the church is not we don't live in isolation of one another. Church is not just a gathering of a bunch of individuals who show up and kind of meet in the same place once a week because it's more convenient to do it this way. And we, we come and we, we have our individual time with God. We just happen to do it together and then we go on from here. You know, you know this. I'm not trying to, you understand this, but it's, it's, it's a word to live this shared life. We live in relation to one another in community. I realize it's hard for some. Some because of personality, you're more introverted, extroverted. I, I'm not going to deal with that right now. But some of you have been burned by relationships. And and the thought of opening up, and even what we're talking about this weekend, it, it, opening up, sharing struggles, sharing uh, suffering, sharing hurt, sharing sins, and Asking and moving close and kind of opening your heart to people. That's scary because you've been hurt deeply in the past when you've done that. And people have hurt you and abused you in that as you've, as you've had people close to you. And that makes you hesitant because you don't want to get burned again. And I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to, underplay that or or um uh, that's significant and but i i I still i just say use paul as an example he got burned big time over and over and you see it in second timothy multiple places that there were those who turned away from him close friends friends oh that hurts friends turn away so there were there were many who deserted him greatest need time of need they left him there were those who did him great harm, the text says. And so there was something that they said, something that they did. that It was just, it was a vicious attack on him and it hurt. 
And yet Paul, his heart is still big for people. And and so Christ is our greatest example. I mean, it, it, moving toward those in love that that spurn his his kindness. That's his, 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 that's just what he's done in coming towards us. Um, so if we're going to be a side-by-side church, we're going to be moving towards one another. This is what we've been talking about all weekend, growing deeper relationships and friendships. But a side-by-side church, it's going to, it's going to foster that kind of growth. It's going to happen. Fourth, a side-by-side church is a helping and hospitable family. It's a family. Paul urges the church to extend this hospitality to Phoebe, whom he calls our sister. So she's family. Cortus is our brother. Prisca and Aquila, verse, uh, verse five, they opened their home to host gatherings of the church. And they, and they did this also in Ephesus. First Corinthians chapter 16, verse 19. We see they did it in Ephesus as well. So they're, they're opening their home to the, to the church and, there are the two groups that are mentioned in verses 14 and 15 are probably all also house churches. Um, in Corinth, Gaius apparently hosted a church in his in his house, verse 23. And so you have these homes that are open and that's where the church is gathering for the first two centuries of the church. It was it was house churches there. There was no there was no church building like we have and there was no common gathering place. And so. When the synagogues weren't an option, when some of those public gatherings places were not an option, they would meet in houses. And, and, and they, these houses could hold 60, 70 people in these churches. You might have many house churches in a city, depending on the size of the church there. And, and so this was, this was what happened. But what did that require? It required people opening their homes, treating one another as family. That's what the home, the home, when you, when you have someone in your home, you're, 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 you're doing what, again, we've been talking about this week. You're, you're opening your heart. You're opening your life to people. There's something, there's something different about that. I mean, I, I, I know, I mean, just in, I can think of examples in here. Those of you, if I've, if I've been in your home, there's this level of relationship that's greater. I mean, this is one of the reasons I I've, I've, I've was more intentional about this uh, um, years ago, but I, I love visiting guys at work. I mean, so... I've visited many of you at work, but there's something about even that. You're going to their place where they spend time and seeing their desk or cubicle or, or wherever they, wherever they work and, and their coworkers and you, you just get to see their life and so it helps me to pray, helps me to, I feel closer. There's this entry into your life and, and so again, don't, don't think that this is just merely uh, coincidence that they just, well, they now have a place else to meet, so they met in homes, but they, look at how they're relating to one another. They're relating as family. There's this closeness that comes as, as hospitality, opening homes, and, 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 and that, that has wonderful advantages, and there's wonderful things, but it also brings risk. <laughs> and opening your life like that, and I don't doubt that those, those showed up, but, uh, I just a little exhortation. I mean, I, I would really encourage you to 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 be a part of the small groups. We don't have many, and we're it's just part of the Vision 2020. Our long range plan is to see this ministry grow and be more um, more a part of the fabric of our church life. And and so we'll we'll, we'll be working in that direction. More to say in a couple of weeks, but uh, but but this is one of the great things: the closeness of relationship, the life that gets shared together as you pray and. Walk alongside one another. There's closer shepherding and, and everybody's involved. And so, 
I, I would encourage you to consider that. But regardless, is, is your home open? Is your life open? Are you taking advantage of things like Eatsy and small groups and just, just, just informally, not even those formal ministries? Is, do you have people around your table? Um, I don't mean you have to have a big fancy feast and you know, bring out the fine china and you eat on paper plates and order pizza. That's fine. That's great. Just get the frozen lasagna and thaw it out and throw a salad together and you're good. Cookies from the deli and we're set. But it's that conversation, share life. And beyond that, let me just go back to a point earlier. Is your is the is are those around that you have around your table are are you are you starting at home with the uh, reflecting the diversity that we want for as an assembly? Is your table diverse? Do you do you have are you inviting people into your life? Are you getting to know people that maybe maybe um, maybe work a totally different vocation? Maybe look different from you. Maybe live in a different area. And are, are, do you do you do you have? Are you including people around your table like that? So so. This is part of what a side-by-side church does. It's a happy, hospitable, open family. Fifth. Fifth feature. Two more. A side-by-side church is made up of people who work hard together for the Lord. So Paul repeatedly mentions how these people were involved in serving the Lord. And so Phoebe was a servant of the church in Sincrea. And so that was a port city near Corinth. She's, again, probably the single businesswoman, but she, she devotes herself to serving the church, using that gift of singleness for the, for the good of the body. Paul calls Prisca and Aquila my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul met this couple in Corinth, if you remember, and, and they worked together there as tent makers. They, they had been forced to leave Rome, um, because the Emperor Claudius had expelled the Jews from, from Rome. And so they had been forced out. This is in Acts chapter 8, verse 1 to 3. Um, but but they, they, they worked alongside Paul. And it, I, Paul, Paul calls her Prisca. Uh, many of you know. And it, the way Luke refers to her is, is Priscilla. That's more of a nickname. I have no idea why. And I'm not going to. I'm not going to speculate, but I just say those that might be confused by that. Prisca is a more formal name. They, they later accompanied Paul to Ephesus and served the church there. And, and, and Paul actually left Ephesus. He left them behind and they helped uh, Apollos kind of get straightened out in his doctrine in Acts chapter 18, 24 to 26. And so now, though, they've, they've, they're able to move back to Rome. So they're back in Rome, kind of their home town and and serving the church there later they're going to move back to Ephesus again second Timothy 4:19 and serve the church there but this is my point wherever they went wherever they ended up in Rome or Ephesus or Corinth or wherever they're at their hearts were for building up the church fellow workers in the Lord i just there's a great example of how husbands and wives can serve alongside one another in the church, working for the Lord. Um, and that can take all kinds of different um, forms. It could just be that ministry of hospitality, opening your home, 
and again, not where the wives slaving away and the husbands watching sports and just yeah, get oh, okay, they're here. I'll I'll get the door and but but we're working to get to side one another and we each have our part to play and engaging with people and building relationships and talking with other couples and encouraging younger couples and young, younger individuals, inviting youth in your home and and and, and serving and blessing them and, and teaching them and discipleship and hosting a small group, evangelism, ministry in your neighborhood and, and walking in your neighborhood and talking with people and getting to know other folks. And I mean, this is the this is good. It's husbands and wives serving alongside. It's not the only way. So I'm not trying to say, well, then well, there's nothing left for me. I mean, you have the Phoebes and you have others who serve in different ways. But I'm saying it's a beautiful thing. Greeters in the church. Husband and wife, just faithful greeting. And I don't mean even just the formal standing at the door, but just moving together towards people that come and visit the church, children's ministries, all kinds of ways. He mentions Mary, who, verse 6, has worked hard for you. He calls Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, uh, Tryphena and Trophosa. They're probably sisters. Their names mean delicate and dainty. Um, but they're not fragile. These are not weaklings. They're, they're workers in the Lord, he says, verse 12. These strong, probably beautiful, feminine women. Persis, another woman, has worked hard in the Lord, verse 12. He, he calls Timothy, my fellow worker. So, in, in Romans 12, he's already written to these, this church, to these believers. Remember the context. This is a letter that would have been read in one sitting. But in Romans 12, he said that every believer has been given at least one spiritual gift that's to be used for the building up of the church. Serving the Lord. And so here, we see there's, there's no bench warmers in the body of Christ. The, the, the people are using their gifts and serving the church. Now, I'm not saying this to... Because I'm about to, you know, promote some sign up for Awana or something like that. Now, if you want to sign up for Awana, I'm sure they could use help. That's great. Um, but, but that's, that sometimes service looks like that in that more formal way. You get a five year pen and all that, and that's, that's great. But oftentimes it's more informal, it's more unnoticed, and, and that's just as valuable. This is work, working for the Lord looks a lot of different ways. Again, it involves just looking for guests on the Sunday morning and Lord's Day worship and being mindful of people and interacting with them and listening to them and asking questions, still going a little deeper. That's that's part of it. It's encouraging when you go pick up your kids from the nursery and preschool or even if you don't have kids, just stopping by and say thank you. I know this is a sacrifice. You miss out on the worship service once a month, but thank you. I just want you to know... I, how blessed we are to to have you serving in this way. That's that's working in the Lord. That's kindness and thanksgiving. It's opening your home to missionaries and uh, that come through and, and having for meal, encouraging them, praying with them, and and hosting them, and it's sharing struggles with friends. We've been talking about this this weekend, asking for prayer and praying for them, and asking how you can pray. It's knowing and loving your neighbors and. Being outside and interacting with people, it's carrying, it's carrying conversations just with others, and so that, that's the stuff. But but a side by side church, we're all working together for the Lord. We're fellow workers, and and all engaged. And again, in some more formal ways, and but all of us in those more informal ways. Last point: 
is the last feature of a side-by-side church. A side-by-side church has both men and women who serve the Lord in complementary ways. I say it's the last point. I'm going to add one more to your outline, but it'll be a brief one. But in this male-dominated culture of, of Paul's day, it's significant that Paul mentions four women who worked hard in the Lord. Verse 6, verse 12, plus Prisca, who worked alongside her husband. Verse 3. And so, again, Phoebe, right off the bat. She's, the, she's this woman that Paul entrusted this, probably the only copy of the letter of Romans to, to be delivered to this church. That's a big thing. And I'm grateful it made it. Uh, and I, I mean, God, obviously in His providence, made sure that that happened. But He trusts this woman with the safe delivery of this letter. It's so precious to us. And all, Paul mentions seven women by name, plus Rufus's mother and Nereus's sister. And, and so Paul clearly believed that women had a special and a unique and important role to play in the local church. And he commended this body and the women of this church for their active role of service and involvement in the place that they had. So women can, should, have significant ministries in the local church and in world missions in biblically appropriate ways. And so there are all kinds of ways in which women can serve the church and be involved in ministry with one another and uh, I just, I'll just point you to a reference and you can read this online. John Piper has a book, What's the Difference? And he's, he's talking about the complementary roles of men and women in the church. And he, he lists 80 different ways of, of that women can serve in the church. And that's just scratching the surface. I mean, there are countless ways. Um, but I, I just say, I'm grateful for the, the, the plethora of godly, um, servant ladies in this church who just serve in a variety of ways and we are blessed by it and there's and and I'm thankful for it and serve joyfully in very significant ways. So uh but but this is a side by side church. Men, women working together, complementary roles. Last last point, and this is an addition, not in your outline, but I was thinking about this even yesterday. A side by side church is made up of whole families who have come to faith in Christ through the gospel. Whole families who have come to faith in Christ through the gospel. He mentions two households in verses 10 and 11. Again, it's probably referred to biological family members, but also the servants, the slaves in those households. And, 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 and so in the, in the book of Acts, you see this also. Whole households coming to faith in Christ. Acts 2.39 and 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 you have Cornelius and Lydia and the Philippian jailer. And in the passage, the next section will be in, in John chapter 4. Uh, the city official, his son is healed. And he, along with all of his household, believed in Jesus Christ. And so so you just have this, this Paul notes this, that there were these, these whole families, whole households that turned to Christ. And again, most of them out of a very dark background and, and property of the emperor, and yet they've believed in Christ. Um, we we all have we have families where we have, and, and even if we don't have large families, we have we have this these natural bridges and these relationships, these people that God has placed in our life. This kind of the, the those that are closest to us. And those are great opportunities for the gospel. We should pray for and and as God opens the door, share the gospel with those that are closest to us. So ask God to 
to, to, to save our household, to save and to bring to faith um, those in our house. So, I mean, we should all have a, a prayer list of 8 to 12 people, just as an example of and asking God to show them their need for Christ and, and to use us to, to bring them to faith in Christ. And so, just that last observation. All right. Well, one of the thing I want you to see is that none of the people listed here in Romans 16, none of them are famous. None of them are exceptionally powerful in the eyes of the world. They're just ordinary people. None of them knew their names would be preserved in Scripture and that we'd be talking about them, trying to pronounce them, you know, 2,000 years later. Uh, they, they didn't, they, it's not why they did it. They didn't know this would happen. And, and I would just say to us, even our names won't be recorded in Scripture. They probably won't be on some plaque around the uh, church here or anything like that. Our, our names won't be recognized or remembered by the world or by people in generations ahead of Christ tarries. But God knows. He knows your name and your service and your, your, your opportunity. To, your life is important to Him. And He wants to use you. He's pleased to use very ordinary, insignificant, weak, needy people like us to do incredible things. Incredible things. We know how he's used people in our own lives, ordinary people. So he sent his son to rescue you and me from judgment. And and he's and he's given us this an important part to play in, in his kingdom. And so Keep that in mind. It could take all kinds of different ways. It could be as a loving homemaker as, and you rear your children to love and follow Christ. It could be setting an example as a godly husband and father. It could be serving in some official capacity in the local church or going out on, on the mission field as a missionary. It could be those ways. It could be telling, simply telling your neighbor the good news of Jesus Christ and praying for them and sharing the gospel and opening your life to them. But whatever your gifts and calling uh, are whatever however you'll be used by the Lord the most important thing is is to know that Christ has saved you from eternal judgment because you put your trust in Christ as your savior and as your lord are you in Christ are you in the lord that's where we started and I just come back to here is is your trust in Jesus Christ you know what that means and if not again we'd love to share with you more but it's your confidence that and what Christ has done for you through his death on the cross for your sins. And what he accomplished there. Raised, rising from the dead. Have you put your faith in, in him alone? If so, then look for, look for ways. And see your life as in the Lord. And you're his instrument to be used in the church in all kinds of different ways. So, I just maybe today, even, if you want, you know, it doesn't matter. You can say the names however you want. You don't have to pronounce them right. Um, but read through these descriptions again. Ask yourself, even, how, how would Paul have described me if, if he had known me? How, how would he, what would he have said of me? He was writing a letter to our church. If Paul wrote a letter to this church today, what, what would he say? What would he commend about us? How would he correct us? What would stand out to him about about our church? I, I end with this quote. I put it in your outline, but from William Barclay, he says, "It's a great thing to go down in history as the man with the open house, or as the man with the brotherly heart. 
someday people will sum us up in one sentence, what will what will that sentence be? That's a good question. I mean, we tend to think in those flashier, more dramatic, more lively kind of ways. But this this is this is great. This is what I would want: servant of the Lord, worker in Christ Jesus, our brother. This is good. Let's pray. Lord, help us to to grow in this in our understanding of what what part we play in the church of Jesus Christ and the side-by-side ministry we have with one another and that the, the, the glue of this church would be just depth of relationship as we're transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and being made more like our Savior. We have this one amazing person, your son Jesus. We have this one life-transforming message and then there's us. And so God... Be pleased to take that combination and do extraordinary things in building up this church and and furthering the advance of your gospel in this community and around the world, God. Use us to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.